Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today, your toaster is heading across the pond. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Seth Nelson, and as always, I'm here with my good friend, Pete Wright. Today, we're talking about one of our favorite things, jurisdiction. You and your former spouse live across state lines. Do they do things a little different there? What if you're facing a divorce 4,411 miles away from the great state of Florida, specifically Tampa, across the pond. For that, we turn to Nicole Phillips, a senior associate solicitor and mediator at Family Law in Partnership, a family law firm in London, England. God save the queen. She handles all aspects of private family law, assisting and supporting clients who are navigating divorce or separation to resolve any financial or children issues that may arise. She's here to talk to us about the divorce process in England. Nicole. Welcome to the toaster. Thank you. I cannot tell you how hard it is for me not to, to brag a little bit that Harry's closer to me right now than he is to you. Um, <laughs> this is a whole, you didn't know that this was going to be a whole podcast about the Royals. Seth is a big Royals guy. <laughs> oh, really? Is Harry your favorite Royal? I actually don't think I could name more than five Royals. <laughs> 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 you already got, got one, five. man. Queen. You got the queen. That's all. I got the I got the queen. She's the big character. <laughs> yeah, that's the truth. Uh, all right, Seth, I'm going to turn to you to set up this conversation because I think it's, uh, you know, this is your favorite thing. I didn't bring my jurisdiction bell uh, because I think I'd be right. ringing it the whole time we have this conversation. Why do you want to have this conversation with Nicole today? Because she's amazing. Let's just start with that, full stop. Nicole is amazing. I've also had the pleasure of working with her uh, on a case which we're not going to discuss today. But in that conversation, we had a lot of conversations, Nicole and I did, about how things work in England. How do they work in the States? Which states are different? And we were both always kind of translating what they did in the other jurisdiction in to our own minds of how it works in our jurisdiction so we could understand it. And I just thought this would be a fascinating conversation because ultimately, laws are just made up. It's where a bunch of people get together and agree, and then if they don't agree, maybe, you know, a law gets passed, it becomes a statute, then the cases get decided interpreting the statutes, but they're just made up. And therefore, depending on how law gets developed over time, they can take splits down that road and you might end up in vastly different places, though the genesis started at the same place. And as we all know, we had a little issue with tea many, many years ago. And so we left England, but we took all of our law starting from England. And it's really developed differently in all the different states in family law. And so we're going to have Nicole on to talk about kind of the differences and what happens over in the UK. So that seems like a very big question. So I turn to you, Nicole, how when you're walking somebody through who is completely ignorant of the divorce process, <laughs> like, let's let's go ahead and say I'm not committing to this, but let's say that person is me. Um, where do you start? Say I come to you and I say, I need I need help. I need a separation. I need a divorce. Yeah. And it's normally, you know, where 
most clients are when they come to Seth or I, they don't have any idea about the divorce process because they probably haven't done it before. Some have, but most I would say haven't. And the first key difference that Seth and I identified when we started discussing the differences between the US and the English system were that in England, divorce and finances are dealt with entirely separately. So they're freestanding proceedings. Whereas I seem to recall, Seth, you saying that in the US, it's all lumped together, including the children proceedings. So that's a key area of difference that we identified. Like you should see the look on Pete's face right now. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah I didn't so, expect I didn't expect this look to hit me quite so early. <laughs> so when you when you separate from your partner, you've got to dissolve the marriage and that you do that by getting a divorce. And the second thing most people want to do is sort out their financial arrangements and basically delink their financial ties from one another. And you can do that also via the court system, but there are many other ways of doing that. And actually, in my practice, I try and steer people away from the courts just because it's quite antagonistic, um, confrontational and expensive. So we at Flip offer a lot of alternative dispute resolution outside of the court that can help people reach a financial settlement. And and that happens after the the legal divorce is done. So they each, they are started, they're distinct processes, but they often run alongside each other. But you have to trigger each separately. By starting the divorce, you don't automatically start the financial process, which is a key difference, I think, between the US and England. So literally, Pete, here's what I hear. You in England, as a lawyer, could win every single divorce case because your client comes to you and they say, I want to get divorced and you get them divorced. You don't have to deal with the money or the kids and you go to the pub and you have a pint and you say, I won. You might, dear listener, be wondering why the hell is Seth still in Tampa? Why aren't you practicing (laughs) in London? (laughs) It turns out I have a flight to catch. Uh, okay, so so do you are are you as the uh, family law uh, solicitor? Uh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, okay. You do you would you be the person to talk to about separating finances, or is there a separate you know team? Yeah. So we deal with the financial side of divorce as well as any children disputes that arise. But in England, very different to the US, we have a split legal profession. So I'm a solicitor, which means that I speak to the client and prepare all the paperwork. I don't actually speak on behalf of the client in court. I'm not an advocate. For that, we have barristers who are trained to do advocacy in a court hearing, whereas I believe Seth, which is amazing. I have so much respect for the fact you do it all. You do the solicitor and the barrister side of things for your clients. So the the check that I sent Nicole has obviously, you know, Venmo yeah, has it, worked it across checked. the pond. Yeah, it cleared. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So but let's get this straight. Yeah. So if I want to practice in a court of law in England, I have to become a barrister. Do I work with the solicitor? Like, do you kind of work up the case and then give it to me and I go argue it? How does that how does that work? Exactly. So it's all part of the team. So if there are court proceedings, I as the solicitor will take the client's instructions and prepare the paperwork. But then just before a court hearing, 
a few weeks, it gets handed over to the barrister, who then goes before the judge and argues the case. Oh my God, I'm 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 definitely going across the pond because this is what I'm thinking, Pete. Yeah, I don't have to do any of the paperwork. I get handed a few weeks before. I go to court. I lose, and I get to say that the judge got it wrong or the solicitor got it wrong. Yeah, right. It's Plausible total political deniability. Cover. Yes, perfect. exactly. I'm loving this. <laughs> so I, I'm. I don't know if you can hear from the sound of my voice that my mind is uh, actively blown. You. So does the barrister work for you, for, for like your firm? Exactly, actually. We instruct the barrister. I work at Family Law and Partnership, acronym FLIP, and FLIP enters into the kind of contract with the barrister. We instruct them on behalf of the client. So the barristers are like free agents. Is that They're freelance? Yeah. Wow. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. So actually, barristers work in what we call, they're called chambers. That's the term in England. And they're these really often beautiful old buildings. They look a bit like Oxford and Cambridge colleges, and they just squirrel away at wooden desks and prepare arguments, but don't have as much contact daily with the client um, than than solicitors do. My question then is one, and I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm sure you have this figured out. But but the thing I'm having trouble wrapping my head around is the barrister coming into the case a few weeks before the case, having to go in and represent the case. If it's a contentious case, how do what is they the get general, up to speed? Right? How do yeah, they get, how up, do they to get up to speed? So it's a good question. Before the court hearing, we as solicitors will write instructions to the barrister where we essentially send them all the key documents from the case and we write a little summary of what the case is about and the key information they need to know. We will also then tend to arrange a meeting, what we call a conference, with the barrister and the client a week or a few weeks before the court hearing to make sure that the case is properly prepared. And that's where the client will meet their barrister for the first time normally. And then you have the court hearing at which the case is argued by the barrister in front of a judge. Will you ever go to court and just sit in the back? That's what I always do, Then I'm always yeah. in the back. Never speak. Okay. So you don't, you don't sit up at the table. You're not a, like a part of the active team. You don't get to sit next to the barrister or anything like that. We, the barrister sits in, so the judge is at the very top on a raised platform. Then... The applicant, so the person that's made the application, their barrister's on the left-hand side and behind their barrister sits the solicitor and the client next to each other on the the row behind the barrister. And on the right-hand side is the respondent's barrister and behind them, the respondent and their solicitor if they have one. Got it. Wow. Okay. Okay. You know I've been waiting for this, Pete. Yeah. Who gets to wear the wigs? I'm so sorry to disappoint you. Nobody in family law gets to wear the wigs. Even the barristers? Wigless. Wigless? There was a check, yeah. I'm devastated. I know. They do still do it in criminal law more, but because of the issues that are dealt with in family and the fact that it's, you know, people's sensitive personal information, it was felt that actually the wigs add a level of formality that, maybe wasn't needed or would feel a bit alienating for the clients. So actually in family law, no wigs. Sorry to disappoint you. Wow. Wow. 
so it's so humanized. I I don't, right, to, just, I don't know what to say. My entire world is shattered. I'll just stay in Tampa. Yeah. I'll just stay in Tampa. <laughs> Do you have wigs? Do you I wear just, wigs? No, no. We none of us wear wigs. Um, I think I would well, I mean, be not holding at work. In, right. Exactly. What's the court garb that you have to don? So the judges will wear uh, just a black robe with no decoration. It's actually by statute, by by rule, that they can't have anything on it other than just a black robe, and then. I will wear a, a suit and tie. And the women attorneys typically wear a, a business suit. There are some in family court, similar to England, it's a little more relaxed depending on the judge in the courtroom. Um, so sometimes people will wear things a little bit more casual. The guys will always have ties on, but maybe it's a sport coat as opposed to a, a suit and the, the women may dress a little uh, differently as opposed to a professional business suit. Um, and then sometimes, but rarely, uh, more kind of on Zoom, the judges might come in in kind of that same garb that the attorneys are wearing and might not even have a robe on if it's that issue. Wasn't there there recently, wasn't there a judge caught wearing shorts or not wearing pants, a suit on top, and he stood up to close a door or something? I thought it was on the news, like somebody caught oh, a recording. Oh, I wouldn't be it. surprised. It's it, so I pants, mean, Zoom, pants right. are optional in family optional. court. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is what actually got people into this problem to yeah. start with. So, <laughs> so I want to, I want to back up a, a little bit because you, we, we talked about three major areas, right? There's the divorce process. There's the financial process, which are separate. And you also indicated you, you dropped the children disputes, uh, disputes over children. <laughs> And that sounded like, you, as you were talking about it, that that, too, might have been a separate process from the legal separation of the two parties. How is How are children handled? Yeah, so children, well, children is dealt with entirely separately. So you can ask a solicitor to deal with your divorce and help you resolve your finances. And you can, you know, whether or not you involve them in anything to do with children is up to you. Actually, in England, the court takes a real back seat when it comes to children because there's a recognition that when parents work together to figure out the best arrangements for their kids, that's what is best for the kids because unresolved conflict between exes, ex-parents, well, they're still parents, but their ex-spouses is not helpful for, for children who can flourish best if their parents are kind of actively working together to co-parent them. So essentially, the court doesn't get involved unless they are, they're asked to. I always encourage people, if they're having an issue resolving how their children are spending time with each of them after their separation, to um, try other avenues before going to court. So there's mediation where the couple will be together and conversations facilitated by a mediator who's could be legally trained but might not be and they're there to act as a neutral third party to help the parents have difficult conversations and try and so around nicole let me get this straight mm-hmm. am i understanding you correctly that there is no requirement to actually have a written parenting plan actively discouraged actively discouraged Yes. The presumption of maturity on human adults in England blows my mind. So by statute, 
I am required to have a written parenting plan that has specific terms in said plan. And I have tried to skirt some of those specific terms and have had the plan rejected by the court. Wow. And how did you find that's helpful? Oh, yeah, because I make a lot more money then. Yes, it's very helpful. (laughs) No, it's not helpful at all. So what the lawyers do is we tell all of our clients that the plan that is written and submitted to the judge, which the judge has to sign off on, but once the judge signs off on it, there's two things to understand. This is the default if you guys cannot agree otherwise. We always encourage parents to be flexible because what works for a two-year-old will be much different than a 12-year-old. Yeah. Right? And in my own life, when I was divorced, my kid was two and a half years old. He just turned 18. And we used as a basis three different schedules throughout that lifetime where we changed it based on what he was going on in his life. And we were always flexible when it came to holidays and extra day here or there. And I and I tell clients this, nobody cares if you get along. No one cares if you're not following the plan. We've changed it many times. We didn't call the lawyers, get it resubmitted to the court, get it signed. Mm. And the idea is, in my world, is if you can get a plan, put it on the shelf and never think about it and focus on your kid and be mature like they do in England then that's what we should do. Wow. So it sounds like a kind of a hoop that everybody has to jump through, but not one that actually is that helpful in the long term. Because as you say, arrangements for children will change over time as they get older and need revisiting anyway, practically. And not only is it a hoop, it makes it harder because now you're forcing people to make decisions that they might not have ever thought of before, but now it creates conflict. So the law in Florida has changed. But when I got divorced, you had to say, quote, who was the primary parent? So imagine all the egos that get involved. And when I got divorced, I told my my wife, the mother of my child, you can be primary parent. I'm not going to argue with you about what a bunch of old men in the legislature in Florida and some governor signed because they're not going to find whether I'm a primary, secondary, and I don't even view parenting primary and secondary. They're not going to find my relationship with my child. I don't care what this document says. But I used to go to trial to argue over who was primary because people wouldn't let their egos get out of the way. Seth, seriously, never have I felt more clear about how the laws are set up to sort of incent a, the divorce industrial complex that, that feels like it exists here when everything is something that ostensibly needs to go back into a plan, needs to go back to the lawyers, needs to go back to the court because of the way the, the laws were written. And I'm curious if, if that assumption is, is accurate at all, because that's, that's certainly my view in hearing the difference in, uh, in England. I agree with that assumption, Pete. And Michael Lundy and I, opposing counsel that we had on the show, talked about that the we have an adversarial system and that is the exact wrong system to put people going through a divorce in right right so what i'm going to start advising clients to do is move how long do you have to be in england to be a resident to get a divorce there <laughs> well you have to physically 
kind of at least six months. But yeah, you can get a divorce based on your habitual residence or your domicile in the country. Okay, so I can advise them to to move to England and call Nicole in six months. Well, it's not that straightforward, though, because, yeah. It's... <laughs> also, you have to move to England, Seth. <laughs> like, that's a complicated process. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. it's, it might be an easier process than going through a divorce in Florida. Yeah, truly. That is interesting, though. That's interesting because it sounds like the legal process kind of makes things more antagonistic than it does procedural kind of de-escalate things. And I think even the English process does that to some extent, but we do have, it's actually written in the statute here that there's a no order principle when it comes to children. So the starting point is that no order is made unless it's really needed. And that's the principle that the courts don't get involved unless they're really asked to. Whereas you have the opposite presumption that they have to and they have to an agreement. I think that's amazing. My question, though, is I deal a lot with mental health issues, kids not being safe because of alcoholism. Do the courts, are those the type of issues where the court would get involved in England? Yeah, absolutely. So there's children aspects of separation are split into kind of private and public law. And where there are issues around safety, even where parents can't afford to have representation, if the social workers of the state become involved and issue proceedings to protect that child in the family court, then there will be court proceedings. And we have some kind of state funded legal advisors who will do that work. So let me pause you on that. We call that in Florida dependency court. Oh, right. Okay. When there's some issues with the kids, the 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 state agency that's supposed to be protecting children, it's got to be pretty bad for them to get involved. You can call them, they'll go look, usually they say, oh, there's nothing going on here. But if there is something going on, they can bring what's called a dependency action, which taken to its final conclusion, either ends up with a plan that the parents have to kind of get off the drugs and and show that they can be a parent again or ultimately puts the kid up for adoption or the parents can lose their rights to raise their children those are kind of the two and they the goal is always to reunify them of course but if the parents can't get there then ultimately they can lose their children is that the same in in the UK yeah that sounds pretty similar it's not work that i do but it Yes, that does sound like a similar a similar kind of approach to, yeah, I guess protecting children and potentially needing to put them into we have we call it being in care where they're cared for people other than their parents appointed by the state. We uh, opened this conversation with a, uh, a bit of a joke about jurisdictions because that's something we deal with here, moving across state lines. Things can be sometimes, you know, vastly different. Uh, does Is England set up jurisdictionally like you in London? Can you handle somebody, you know, across the the breadth of the of, of England or England, Wales, um what 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 is your jurisdiction? Yeah, England and Wales. Oh, really that's it. Is. I nailed it yeah. in one. All right, Looks yeah. that's pretty good, Pete. Super smart. Yeah, in one. Yeah, yeah. I don't think yeah. you could have named <laughs> Scotland or Ireland, but that's well, okay. I didn't want to get into the whole because immediately my thought was, well, Scotland, Ireland. What about what about the whole United Kingdom? <laughs> like, where, where does it ever? Well, stop? yeah, it's so interesting that it's all in America. Every state has a different 
a different jurisdiction. Is that right? So there must be yeah. must become very complicated if people living on you know border you know between states and how does that all work? Because then we have what's called the UCCJEA, the Uniform Child Custody Jurisdiction and Enforcement Act, and that will decide what state has jurisdiction, and then you have to use that state's laws. What's the longest acronym you can come up with, Nicole? <laughs> <laughs> We have, a, we have some bad acronyms, actually. Lawyers love an acronym. Oh, yes. My <laughs> children hearing is called a Fahudra, which makes no sense. Wow. You really had to get the guttural I action know, going there. Fahudra. <laughs> <laughs> What's it? First hearing dispute resolution appointment. Ding, ding, ding. She wins the prize on that one. She does. That's fantastic. Uh, okay. So culturally speaking, the, the divorce rates are uh, much lower in the UK uh, than I, I believe here. Do you think the, the, legal, the way the legal system is set up uh, has any impact on divorce rates? Is, how, how do people view divorce there? Hmm, interesting. Well, I think the divorce rates just show one aspect of this because the number of people getting married is, is going down it's reducing so fewer people are getting divorced but they're not it doesn't mean that fewer couples are separating yeah so that's interesting I, i've got two questions one i want to finish this thought and then i want to see if the emotional aspects of the divorce are similar in the uk on what we deal with here but on this front since we have the same in the U.S., less people are getting married or they're getting married later. So, but they're having children. So that still gives me things to do because I have to go to court and call it, do a paternity case and have to do this parenting plan and get it submitted to the court. And I still have to run child support guidelines because there's a financial obligation to support your children. So, but I wouldn't have to deal with the normal marital financial disputes of dividing assets and liabilities, equitable distribution, or alimony. So in the UK, if people aren't getting married and they have children and the court has a no-order policy, what do you do? So good question. So in, in England, we actually have a different system for resolving finances where the couple is unmarried and most lawyers in this area acknowledge that the law is not fit for purpose because there isn't really a targeted law to help people who are unmarried separate and sort out their finances in a non-cumbersome way. You have to just rely on property law as if the couple weren't ever you know, married or even in an intimate relationship. And then we also have um, some legislation to ensure that children are financially looked after in the same way that that you just described. There's, um, and that can extend to both capital and income payments towards children, but there, the law isn't really well targeted towards unmarried couples who split up and have children. So there is a lot of pressure. Well. Lawyers, family lawyers in England have been campaigning for a long time to change that, to get some more targeted laws to help um, that sector of society, which is growing because more and more people are having children without getting married and then splitting up. 
What about on the other side of the relationship spectrum? We've had a number of conversations on this show about gray divorce, people who are, you know, kids leave living, you know, sometimes having long marriages and divorcing at a much older age. Are you seeing any notable trends there? I think that is a key time that a couple may think about splitting up. I think through the kind of life cycle of a marriage, the key stresses are young children coming into the frame. I think that can be a really difficult time for a marriage. And then as the couple get older, children may be leaving leaving the nest and then two people finding that maybe they don't have as much in common as they did before or wanting different things. And I guess also people live so much longer now than they did before. So, you know, people can still have three or four really long, meaningful relationships or marriages of 20, you know, 10 to 20 years. And that's kind of, that's the way people are living more these days rather than being with one person for 70 or 80 years. I think that's kind of the reality. Maybe not 70 or 80, you know, people aren't tending to live to 100. They get married very young (laughs) in England, actually. So, Well, the queen, how long was she married till her? Husband died. There's a long, long, long long time. So, okay. So in the U.S., there's about 44% divorces. In the U.K., it's about 33%. And when those people are going through a divorce, do you find the same type of emotional aspects that um, sometimes people get paralyzed with the thought of going through it so they just can't make decisions and then they finally get to the point of making the decision it all has to happen right away is there still this fighting over kids even though there's no court orders do do people run up debt or steal money or hide money and cut people off from support these are things that you know a few of my favorite things song is going through my head (laughs) um, that happen on a daily basis in the world of divorce in tampa florida (laughs) Yes, I mean, I guess in answer to your question, divorce is a really tough time in people's lives and you don't always see the best side of people. I tend to think on the whole, things are improving. We actually in England have just bought in as of kind of April of this year, no-fault divorce. So the process used to be that in order to get a divorce, one person had to blame the other unless they had been living separately for two years. And we've done away with that system, which is brilliant because that would start things off in an antagonistic blaming way when actually we all know that people separate for so many reasons that go way beyond something you could just summarize in five points in a legal document. And saying it's someone's fault and not the other is not really a helpful way to start that process because it gets people riled up. And all the emotional research in this area shows that children are best served if their parents are on the same page and they co-parent effectively and cooperatively. That helps children flourish into the future. So it's brilliant that we have recently changed the law in respect of divorce. We now have a no-fault system. And that's what we have in Florida. But we have to, in our petition for divorce, there's certain things that are required and we have to state that there are irreconcilable differences. So I always laugh when there is a celebrity divorce and they file and the newspaper gets 
or the social media or the media gets the divorce petition and they say they filed because there's irreconcilable differences. And I'm like, that is in every single divorce petition required by the statute in every case in Florida. But that's the like juiciest thing that's in there. And yeah. so they, they gossip to journalists the don't know the law. <laughs> Generally, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's just the top line. Exactly. Also, who doesn't divorce because of irreconcilable differences? <laughs> sort of called a divorce. Well, nice right. Tanning. <laughs> uh, how, uh, what is the, the mindset on uh, alimony, child support, uh, those sorts of post divorce financial arrangements? Yeah, we have a system where, you know, both there are, you can bring a claim to both of those if there are children or there's, grounds for we call it uh, spousal maintenance rather than alimony but it's the same concept it's so weird my wife actually calls our relationship spousal maintenance that's really <laughs> weird that's one of the differences that i've noticed <laughs> yeah so um yeah you get in terms of I mean, it's actually very discretionary and it's hard to predict spousal maintenance. Actually, it's a hard area to advise on. I don't know if it's the same for the US, but we don't have a formulaic system when it comes to alimony or spousal maintenance. It's a kind of needs-based system. So you have to make an assessment of what one person needs and what the other can afford to pay. And obviously needs is a subjective concept so that can be difficult to ascertain my mother taught me there's a difference between (laughs) needs and wants Um, uh, but no currently in florida we have a same system need and ability to pay there is uh legislation that's waiting to get on signed by the governor or allow the governor allow it to become law um that would turn it into more a formulaic uh system but i agree with you as it sits today it's extremely discretionary and it's hard to predict and it makes it very difficult then to advise clients on what a potential outcome would be and how much we want to fight about this or that. And sometimes I think it comes down to does the presentation of the evidence, including how much sympathetic or likable your client is compared to the other party can, you know, judges are human. They like to give things to people that think are doing the right things. According to the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, approximately 10% of children live with a parent with an alcohol use disorder. This is an alarming statistic as a family law professional who deals with custody cases regularly. Finding the balance between the child's safety and helping the child maintain a relationship with both parents is one of the hardest things to navigate. Add in the he said, she said phenomenon that happens with divorcing couples who often weaponize alcohol use against one another, and the situation is even more difficult. All of this is why Soberlink has been one of the most important tools for my clients dealing with these issues. Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring tool has helped over 500,000 people prove their sobriety and provide peace of mind regarding the child's safety. Soberlink helps keep the focus on the best interest of the child, which is really the most important part in a divorce case dealing with children. I've teamed up with Soberlink to create a parenting plan guide to help people going through divorce that involves alcohol in children. And you can download it today at soberlink.com slash toaster. And if you take a look and you think, 
You're ready to order Soberlink. Just mention how to split a toaster for $50 off their device price. Our thanks to Soberlink for sponsoring How to Split a Toaster. All right. We've we had just as a an aside, one of the things that gives me a great agita is that uh, in the U.S. legal system, pets are considered property. How does England consider the family dog? The same. Sad, isn't it? OK, well, we have okay. a whole episode dedicated to pets and divorce, and I need to go listen to it to give me comfort. Um, What is the thing, as you sit here talking to Seth and arguably me, what is the thing that you find blows your mind the most about the American divorce uh, family law system? I think it's really interesting that everything has to be dealt with by the court. I think it's quite kind of paternalistic, that stance that the judges know best and need to get involved in because oh let's be very clear why when they get divorced do they need to stick their noses in and make all these arrangements oh nicole i you know <laughs> the statute says the judges know best the judges uh, <laughs> the judges certainly believe they know best yeah. even when they get appealed and the appellate court overrules them they're very annoyed by that i bet I think that's the big difference. Actually, financial outcome-wise, there are quite a lot of similarities I've realized between the systems, but it's actually just the system itself. It's, um, I think that's quite different. And actually, in England, because it's expensive, judges are paid for by the government, there is a push to try and keep as much out of court as possible. And it doesn't sound like that's happening so much in the US. No, we. I think we're a very litigious society. So... This is going to sound bizarre, I guess. I just, this just popped into my head though, Pete, because when we file all this stuff with the court, because we're required to, the government, the clerk of the court maintains these documents. But if you do a financial arrangement that's not required to go to the court, where are they kept? So the, although the, the financial arrangement can be decided by the couple, the agreement that's drawn up, which is called a consent order, basically like the contract setting out the terms of the agreement, in order to make that legally binding, it does have to be endorsed by a judge. But where a couple have come to an agreement and provided it's within the bounds of reasonableness, a judge normally does sign that off. So it just tends to be a paper exercise. No one has to go to court for that. You just lodge the paperwork and if a judge deems the outcome to be reasonable, it will be signed off. But a couple doesn't have to do that. So I think there are probably lots of people who have reached agreements direct financially and they're not legally binding, but they will never bother to instruct lawyers to go through that paper process. But then, you know, until someone tries to renege on the agreement, I guess... They took along as they were. That's amazing. And it just sounds like there there are so many pieces, another nice parallel, so many pieces of the process that are defined in statute that people just sort of, let's just pretend that's not there. As long as nobody's complaining, we're just going to pretend we're not going to deal with this. That's how most people deal with me, Pete. <laughs> that's right. That's let's exactly, just that's pretend exactly right. he's not here. I actually so. have that in my contact list for you. Seth Nelson, pretend he's not there. That's a title. Uh, hey, this has been fantastic. Uh, 
uh, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us for this show. You have been uh, you have been eye opening, illuminating conversation. Having me, Nicole. Where can people find you in the UK if they have a burning family law question? I am at Family Law and Partnership. You can find my profile on our website, and we are in central London and. My email address is is available there. That's probably the best way to contact me. Um, I do have a Twitter account, but I don't use it hugely. So I'm still old-fashioned emails, the best place to get me. <laughs> uh, we will put the uh, link to the, to the firm in uh, the show notes. If you're curious, uh, it's at flip.co.uk. And I love that. I love that we've got a referral link now from Tampa to London. That just delights me, warms my heart that we'll have that there. Thank you so much, Nicole, for joining us on the show today. Thank you. Seth, you doing okay? Have you learned enough today? Oh, I'm like, I'm done. Yeah, I'm I'm booking my flight. Um, I'm I'm not going to buy a wig. Um, (laughs) Nope. Nope, but you're good there. I'm going to have Nicole tee up the cases for me and, and then have a client conference meeting three weeks before I have to go in front of the family <laughs> law court. I can, I feel like this is your retirement plan right now. Like this is going <laughs> right. to ease you into the fields, the fields of gray. So do you have to take a bar exam to, to become, how do you become a lawyer real quick? Yeah, you do. Oh, geez, I might be out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'd pass with flying colors. You've got all the skills already. Oh, you're very kind, Nicole. That Venmo is still still working there. Still good. Still good. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Nicole Phillips. And thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to this show. Don't forget, if you have questions for us, for Seth, that you would like to get your legal and divorce questions answered. Let's just say divorce questions, divorce legal questions, not just any legal question. Please head over to howtosplitatoaster.com slash ask a question and uh, you can submit your question there. It will come straight to us on the show. Link in the show notes so you don't have to remember that whole thing. And uh, we will get your question on the show. We appreciate all the questions that come in and look forward to answering yours. Thank you again, Nicole Phillips and Seth Nelson, America's favorite divorce attorney. On behalf of all of them and me, Pete Wright, we'll see you next week right here on How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. Seth Nelson is an attorney with Nelson Coster Family Law and Mediation with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, How to Split a Toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of Nelson Coster. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida.